Um, but as we... Um, as we're gathered together this morning, um, what we want to do is actually continue the series that we've been in. So if you're new, if you're visiting, if you're just here this morning for the first time, this is not the sermon you expected, which is Revelation. Um, and uh, so uh, don't worry, it's not going to be that nuts, um, but we have been in the book of Revelation for a while, and we did want to continue our series. And as it always happens, and it really does always happen this way, as we're doing um, a book of the Bible, um, and we say we, we want to not take breaks as much as possible. We want to keep going through even some of the special holidays and stuff. We always end up finding that this was the perfect thing for God to bring before us on that day, and I think we'll see that this morning as we enter into the next part of Revelation. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Revelation chapter 4. Um, we have just been looking at um, the letters to seven churches in the first uh, in chapters two and three of Revelation, and uh, so we've been in those for a while for seven weeks now, and um, and now what we're doing is we're we're making a huge transition this morning as we get to an entirely different section of uh, God's revelation to John. Um, and as we get into that section, um, what we're going to do is we're going to be transported with John into the very throne room of heaven itself in the vision that God gives him. So I'm going to read, um, and we're going to kind of read and go through this um, this morning. And uh, the first thing we'll do is read the first few verses that just kind of describe what it is that John sees. So this is the beginning of a section that's going to carry us through into chapter 16. Um, and uh, we're going to just talk this morning about chapter 4 here uh, briefly. So I'm going to read you the first few verses of this, and we'll put them up on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible in front of you, and then we'll talk a little bit about what's going on here. So we read this in Revelation chapter 4. Oh, there we go. Uh, John says this, after this, and the, the, the after this is um, after God gave me, um, after Jesus really gave me the words to, to give to these churches and these seven letters that I wrote down that I just passed on to you. After this, that, that stuff, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne, there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And then if we go on a little bit more, we read this. And around the throne, and on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And we're going to stop right there. So that's pretty intense. 
So John, um, who's uh, been um, sent to an island, banished to an island, Patmos, um, has been given this vision from the Lord. And he comes to John and he takes him up, it says, into his, it takes him up in the spirit. And after he gets this message to these seven churches that he's just written down, he says, behold, a door is standing open to heaven. God basically brings him into the throne room of heaven. And he says, there's this voice that he hears speaking like a trumpet. And that voice says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, where this is going to lead us is ultimately to judgments of God. And that's where we're going to be for quite a while after this. Um, There are these seals and these bowls and these trumpets and these things that are going to be symbols and representations of judgment that God's going to bring to show his power and his sovereignty over the earth and everything that happens within it. But that's coming later. What we see here first is simply a description of what John sees in this vision as he comes into the throne room of heaven. Now, um, this is us getting into the parts of Revelation that are the most difficult to understand. Uh, What exactly is John seeing here? Is he seeing the throne room of heaven as it stands for all time, including today? Um, Is he seeing um, the way God always is with his angels and these people? Is he seeing a manifestation of God that God is showing him for a specific reason? One of the things that we said when we began this series was that what you have to understand about the book of Revelation is that much of it is is symbolic. It's symbolic because this is how this form of um, a biblical literature worked and because God is giving a vision to a person that we're going to see makes connections with a lot of visions that people have received um, of the throne room of God in the Old Testament. So many of the things that, uh, that John has mentioned here are things that other people, people like Isaiah, people like Ezekiel, people like Zechariah, Daniel, we even read about it in Job. We read about other descriptions of the throne room of heaven, and those things have similarities to what John is describing here. Some of them are even crazier. Uh, some of them are, are less detailed. Um, but we see connections between those different things. Uh, What we have to understand about this in order to interpret it at all is what exactly it is that we're looking at. And what we're basically looking at is how God has chosen to reveal himself, to sort of manifest himself to John for the purposes of this revelation. What we read about is that the word revelation means sort of the pulling back of a curtain and showing what's really going on behind the scenes. And that's exactly what happens when it says that there's a door that opens up and John is just brought into this throne room of heaven. And so God is showing himself to John in such a way as to communicate something about who he is, how he functions, and it's supposed to teach us something. It was supposed to teach the church something. So what do we see about God in this? Well, the first thing that we see is that he is seated on a throne. I'm going to kind of jump around to these here a bit, or I may just have to have the guys in the back help me if it doesn't work. Oh, no, he can't see that. Can you guys go back for me? Sorry. All right, never mind. Just go to that thing. Whatever. Can you just go to that Revelation slide again? Sorry. If you have it in your Bible, we'll just go that way. Sorry. So the first thing that we see that we read about in verse 2 is at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So God is 
like a king or an emperor who is sitting on a throne. Does God get tired? No. Uh, Does God have to obey the laws of gravity? No. After a big meal, does God need to have a rest? No. Does God need to eat a big meal? No. Why is God like a king who's sitting on a throne in a throne room? Doesn't that seem pretty worldly, earthly? Doesn't that not seem maybe uh, like what you would expect to find the God who have created all of the universe to necessarily be doing? God presents himself to John as an emperor or a king who is seated on a throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. How does a person have the appearance of some, of some precious stones? And, and we don't fully understand. But what we know is that John is trying the best that he can to describe what God's appearance is like, and he mentions these things, these precious stones that have certain colors and tones to them. Um, But there isn't a lot of description about God, you'll notice. And other um, prophetic and sort of apocalyptic writings will will read more descriptive things about God. Um, But in this one, it doesn't seem that the focus is necessarily on the appearance of God, the one who's seated on the throne. This seems to be that the focus is on the fact that he's in a throne room, sitting on a throne, and that there are also these people around him. Now, it says that there is a rainbow around him. Why would there be a rainbow? Um, This is where we begin to understand that there's symbolism that's happening here. All of these things are symbols of things that are supposed to tell us something. And you can get really bogged down in the details of this stuff. You could spend probably too much time hyper-focusing on interpreting and understanding every little individual piece here, uh, believing that there's some kind of a way to decode these things so that we can know even more than I think God is really trying to tell the church and show John here. What's important is things like a rainbow is God's uh, symbol to his people that he will fulfill his promise. And so a rainbow around the throne room of God would be a way of bringing his people back and showing them once again that he is a God who fulfills his promises. Perhaps here in the throne room of heaven is where all the promises of God are ultimately fulfilled. Uh, These things have a beautiful appearance. We continue on though and reread that he's not the only one in the throne room. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. They were clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And so there's other thrones with other elders, people that are seated here. Who are these people supposed to represent? Likely what it is is they represent the church, believers, sort of globally and historically. Twelve of them would have represented probably the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve of them would have represented the twelve apostles or disciples. Uh, You combine those two groups, you know, that's kind of how we would think of like the Old Testament, the New Testament church and God's people, right? And so these elders who are seated on these thrones represent those who faithfully serve the Lord and follow him and are a part of his kingdom and, um, and sort of since he's had a people. And so they are seated there on thrones around him. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. There are rumblings and peals of thunder. And these torches represent the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So like before the throne, there's this sea of of glass, it seems. A sea of it. So like a very calm sea. 
Do you begin to see how like John is trying to describe something that's really hard to describe? It's maybe a little bit like waking up from a dream and having it come to you the next day in pieces and trying to describe that dream the best that you can. But what he is getting as clear as possible is the most important parts. You read, if you go to the next part again, that around the throne, on each side of the throne, there are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Ugh, right? I mean, if you've ever seen the pictures that have been drawn to try to show what these things look like, they're pretty out there, right? Something with eyes all over its head on the front or behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like a face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. These four creatures represent all of creation, all of creation. Some would even say sort of wild animals, flighted animals, domesticated animals, man, God's creation, right? Um, And they themselves are bowing down and they're kind of worshiping God who sits on a throne like a king and a ruler. So why show John this? What's the significance of this? Uh, the way that God presents himself to John is meant to communicate something to John about who God is. And it's the key to us understanding how symbolism works in the book of Revelation and how far we are to really go with it. An example I would give is like if I were to say to you, I love my children, and you were to go, okay, I, I believe that, but that's a pretty vague thing to say, right? You love your children. I mean, what does that look like? A lot of people would say, I love my children. What do you mean by I love my children? So then what I might do is I might uh, get out my phone. I wouldn't actually do this, by the way. But I might get out my phone. Well, I would do this. I like showing pictures of my kids. And I would say, well, here are some pictures that show you what I mean by I love my children. Uh, My daughter and I love to spend time together doing things. And so there would be a picture of us like making a gingerbread house or something or like building something or working in the garden. My wife takes great pictures of these things when they happen. And um, otherwise, I would never have any photos of them, you know. Um, I would show you that picture and say, uh, I love my daughter looks like this. Do you get it? Do you get what it looks like? It looks like me and her spending time together. Or I might show you a picture of uh, me sitting at one of my son's football practices, which I went to uh, as many as I could, even when it rained, and uh, because I loved being there and I wanted to support him in that. And so I might show you a picture of that and say, like, that's what it looks like to love my son in this season, right? Those are more vivid and clear and specific pictures of what it looks like when I say I love my kids, So when God is wanting to reveal himself to John and to the people in the churches that are going through what these churches are going through, he says, I want to show myself in such a way as to give you a very vivid picture of the way you should be seeing me right now. So the key to understanding the throne room of heaven, the symbolism of all this stuff is very simple. What does God want us to see him as here? What does he want these churches to see him as here? And I would say this. Uh, And it ultimately is the answer to all of our problems, which are the problems that all of these churches are facing. He's writing this to churches that are facing persecution, lukewarm faith, having lost their first love, uh, bad teaching, and and the the pressures of the Roman, um, entire Roman government and empire. And as the churches are facing all of those things, God is writing this revelation, he's revealing this to John to give to the churches to say to them that the answer to all of your problems, whatever they may be, all of the problems that you are facing right now, 
The answer is actually a very simple one. See me and see me in all of my glory. He's just finished these seven letters to these churches. And in these letters, he has basically covered the gamut of all of the things that churches struggle with, that believers struggle with as they seek to follow God in a broken and fallen world. Some were actually doing well, uh, and yet they had lost their first love, meaning they were going through the motions. They were just kind of doing Christian things and church things, and people liked it from the outside. But on the inside, he said, you've lost your first love. You no longer have a passion for me like you used to. That's something that people deal with today. That's something churches struggle with today. There were those he was saying that were being persecuted and threatened, and to them he said, be faithful unto death. Why on earth can I be faithful unto death? Why should I be faithful unto death? Because in Christ, life comes from death. Because death is not the end, and death is not uh, something that conquers us. That when we experience death in our life and in our faith, that Jesus is one who brings life from death, both dying to ourselves as we give more of our life over to God and experiencing actual physical death, he brings us back from that into true and great life. There were those that came into the church that were teaching things that were wrong. There were churches that had fallen asleep because they had gotten so comfortable. And to them, the message was simple. Wake up from your slumber. To the church in Philadelphia, he would say to them, be faithful to me even when you don't have power and authority in the city that you live in. When you're not in charge of things, when you're not the ones in control, be faithful to me still. You can. In fact, spread the gospel, the good news about me. You can. And to the last church that we talked about, the one that I think might apply the most to the culture in which we live today, the message was very simple. When you live in an affluent, a comfortable culture, it's very easy to be lulled into a lukewarm faith, one in which you're neither hot or cold, but just kind of somewhere in the middle, just kind of coasting. His message to all of these churches was the same. Be faithful to me. Keep following me Keep pushing forward, push through these things, endure in these things, hope in these things. How on earth can they possibly do that? God knows they need to know. How can we do that? How can we possibly hang in there? How can we possibly be encouraged this much? And so he brings John into the very throne room of heaven and says, I'm going to show you who I am in such a way that you can tell the church, this is how you can be faithful to me. This is how you can have all of your problems dealt with. Whatever problem or struggle your church is going through, the answer is the same. See me as I am in all of my glory, says God. How is that the answer to all their problems? The throne room that we see here is remarkably similar to the throne room of the Roman emperor. This is one of the ways that we know that it's most likely a symbolic representation of God. Because the Roman emperor would sit on a throne, in a throne room. And guess what? He would be surrounded by other thrones of the senators of Rome. And guess what those senators would be wearing? You know those white toga things that we think about? They were wearing them, and they weren't just having a party. That was actually what they wore for work. It was pretty great. They wore their white togas. They had their white crown, or they had their crowns on, right? They sat on these thrones. He's describing, showing a picture of God in the throne room of heaven in such a way as to say, Guess what? My throne room's bigger than theirs. 
I'm not trying to brag, but I am. My throne room's bigger than theirs. His throne's probably better. He is purposefully showing himself in such a way as to say, I, everything that you're afraid of, everything that you're tempted by, everything that you think may defeat you, whatever, literally whatever you are facing, pales in comparison to who I am and how in control I really am. What God wants to communicate to the church is through simply bringing John into his throne room and communicate to us today is this. I am all-powerful, and I am totally in charge. I've got it. That's the number one thing that we are meant to take from this. To see God in all of his glory, in every instance, in every circumstance, is the first answer to any problem that we face. It is not going and fixing the problem even. Now, if we're honest, that is not the first thing we think to do. In fact, many of us, if we're honest, may not spend very much time thinking about God at all. We may not spend very much time putting our minds in that place, much less uh, reading about him to learn more about him, much less reading about him to hear him speak to us, much less talking to him and putting our life before him in prayer, much less worshiping him. But all of these things are part of seeking the very glory of God because what we see here is very clear. The more that you put yourself in front of me and the more that you fix your eyes on me, these things are going to go away. They're going to go away and they're going to be put into the proper perspective that they need to be. It's the answer to what all of these churches were facing and dealing with. Those who were tempted by the pull of the world to, you know, change the way they lived and acted and, and, and become like lukewarm or, or, or fall asleep he said, just see me for who I am, and it'll wake you up. You'll be like, man, God is way better than that thing that I want, that I keep turning to. God is way better than that thing that I want to find pleasure in. Pleasure in. God is way better than, than these idols that my culture, the Roman culture at the time, they literally had idols that represented all these other things that you look to for satisfaction. In our culture, we have idols. They're not statues, but we still have them. All those things that you might look to. Guess what? I'm way more satisfying than those things. I'm way more fulfilling than those things. What about the fear that, that people feel when they know that there are governments that, that, that might oppress them or, or that would limit the way they can worship God or those who they believe are persecuting them or, or, or all of the things that a person faces who's trying to follow God in a fallen world? He would say the answer to you is this. Guess what? They're not in charge. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I sit on a throne. And he's also showing them how true what he said in his letters was. Because in his letters, he said to the church, keep going, and guess what? You're going to conquer with me. You're going to be there with me. You're going to wear robes that are white, like these elders. You're going to have crowns of victory, like these elders. And you're going to be there beside me, sharing in that with me. Does God have to do that? No. But what he says to them is, he says, you will rule with me, much like the senators of Rome rule under and with the emperor. It was a common act for people in leadership under an emperor to, to 
sort of put their crowns down before him as a way of saying, like, my power is, is just, I give it to you because it's used in service to you. And we read about this again and again in Scripture, that that's what believers do. So the first thing we see is a picture of the throne room. And that picture of the throne room is supposed to show us this. But the next thing that we see is what happens in that throne room uh, and the way that all of these people and all of these creatures that are totally crazy and bananas, how they respond to that emperor, God. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, I'll read it in my Bible. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." So not only do we get a picture of the throne room of heaven here, but what we see is what happens in the throne room of heaven, which is simple. All of creation, these creatures, and all of believers, these other elders who rule, who sit beside him with their crowns, all they're doing is worshiping him. They're worshiping and they're praising him. There is something about this king, God, who's seated on this throne that compels all who are in his presence to worship him, to offer what they have to him. It brings them such satisfaction and pleasure. It brings him such glory. There's like nothing else that you could ever imagine doing in his presence than worshiping and praising him. For anyone who says that modern worship songs are too repetitive, by the way, can you imagine if all you had was holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come? I mean, it says it right there. Day and night, they never cease to say it. You know what's crazy about that? It's almost like the worship that happens in God's presence is like the most repetitive and you know, uncool worship that maybe we could come up with. And yet it is, it is a worship that is totally pleasing to him. So this tells us that the response of these creatures and these elders to him is not even about that. It is simply them being unable to stop saying it again and again and again. When we encounter God, this is what we're compelled to do. When we encounter God and his glory, we are compelled and we are even commanded to worship him. This is our response. And so in whatever we are facing and whatever we are dealing with, again, everything that we are facing and dealing with, like these seven churches, 
God's encouragement to them, what he wants them to know is this. Here's who I am, and that's what matters, and here's what you do. Worship me. Keep worshiping me. Keep worshiping me again and again, over and over. In your worship of me, you will find life. In your worship of me, you will do what you've been created to do. But here, I think, is the challenge, right? If we are to seek God in all of his glory, we can't see him. We don't get to do what John did. We don't get to go to the throne room of heaven. We don't get to be transported like he was. So how can we experience God in his glory if we are sinful people? Because here's the thing about a description of heaven, right? Any description of heaven, the bigger and bigger it gets, the more it fits the size and scope of a God who has created everything, the more it would seem that we are inadequate to that place. Would it not? You see, the, the, any time that there's a description of, of heaven or the afterlife or anything like that that is so specific that it's more like life on this earth, there's something about that that feels comfortable to us and appealing, but then there's also something about that that feels too small to any God who would have created all of what we see here. And yet, any idea of heaven and, and eternity um, of, or being in the presence of the God who created time and space itself, that's, that seems kind of terrifying to me. My, my son and I were reading, um, we started reading Huck Finn this last week. And the first chapter of Huck Finn is about him being, I think, I think it says, tamed or domesticated by his aunt. Uh, that's like the name of the chapter. She's basically attempting to domesticate this wild child. And it says that she sits him down and they eat dinner and then she reads to him about stories of the good place, trying to convince him that he wants to go, that he should want to go to heaven. And she says to him, um, it'll mostly be harps and clouds and singing. And he says, that doesn't sound good to me. And he asked her if she thought his friend Tom Sawyer might be there. And she said, probably not. And he said, that sounded good to me because I want to be with Tom wherever I am. So he ultimately decides, not only do I not want to go to heaven, but I'm glad my friend isn't going either because I just want to hang out with him wherever we go. This is the challenge of seeking the glory of God, is this. And the good news is, with us being who we are, living as we do, we cannot reach God. We cannot experience God in all of his glory. But because God loved us so much, and this is why I am so glad that of anything for us to look at on a day like this, it is the throne room of heaven itself, is that, man, if there was only a way for people on this planet to experience the glory of God just a little bit more tangibly, if only he could maybe even come to us physically, and manifest himself in such a way that we could experience him and know him better. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his 
glory. Glory as of the only Son of the, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why is it such a big deal that Jesus came and was born? You know, don't even, we, we won't even go all the way to the end, which we talk about at Easter. We'll just stay here with the birth. It's all about anticipation and celebration and people being grateful that the Messiah has come. Why is it such a big deal? Because we want to see the glory of God. And we are so limited in our ability to do it. God would have to, on his own, out of love for us, say, I am going to make a way for you to know me better. And so the good news is, the great news is, that the word, which is God, with God, eternally being with him, became flesh and dwelt among us. And because of that, the incredibly good news is that we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We read a little bit later on, a few verses later. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Scripture is filled with ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to us so that we can understand aspects of who he is. And what he chose to reveal himself as to this church, to these seven churches, was as a king and a ruler, someone that they would bow down to and worship who is in complete sovereign control. And he manifested himself to us in his son, Jesus. When he knew people wouldn't come to him, God brought his glory down to them. And that's what we celebrate today. We celebrate today the fact that God came in the flesh so that we could experience him in a more real way. He did so much more. He lived the perfect life. He was the Messiah that was foretold for so many years. And he ultimately would be sacrificed on a cross and would pay the penalty for our sins so that we could ever stand in God's presence. But if... The solution to all of our problems is to fix our eyes on the glory of God, however we can get it, in whatever way we can. Then the perfect place to start is with Jesus. To to read in the Gospels about how God manifested himself to us to live in the flesh in this world, to hear the teachings of Jesus. I have met so few people who have disagreed with the teachings of Jesus outside the walls of the church. And God has manifested himself through that. Whatever anyone here is facing today, I mean, holidays are highs and they are lows. I've seen some happy faces this morning and I've seen some sad faces. I know there are some of us who are celebrating and there are some of us who are grieving. I know that we're all in different situations. As the churches that John was writing to, we're all facing totally different things. The good news is the solution is all the same. That we seek God, we seek his glory. We seek to experience him however we can. And we worship him. By doing that, he says, we will remain faithful 
we will continue moving forward and we will be changed as a result. Let's pray. Father, it is um, incredible to get a glimpse of you the way you revealed yourself to John. We are so grateful that you have made it abundantly clear time and again that you have been vivid, that you have painted pictures for us that are so vivid to show us this clear point that you are in control, that you are in charge. That is the thing that we need to know and hear constantly, that you, our God, are in control, that you, our God, are in charge that you reign over your creation and that all creation bows down to you, that we will share with you in that reign one day. It doesn't feel that way. It didn't feel that way to the churches that received this letter at first. And it doesn't feel that way to us now so much of the time. When we experience pain and suffering and sickness and death, when we experience senseless, tragic things, when we realize how, um, how difficult life is at times, and when we look up and we ask that question of God, why would you allow this, Lord? Our instinct is to doubt your goodness, to doubt your sovereignty. Lord, you are abundantly clear to us that the most important thing that we can do is to trust that you are in control, to trust that you love us, and to trust that we will one day be in your presence and reign with you as well, Lord. God, would that be what keeps us faithful? And when we worship you, even now as we sing, as we lift up our hands and we sing these words and we celebrate the fact that you came to us in the form of this baby, God, would our worship to you be pleasing because we are doing right here, right now, the very thing that we were created to do. God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?